Do you like the work we're doing here at It's All Journalism? For as little as a dollar a month, you can help us continue the conversation about good journalism. Show your support by donating to our Patreon campaign. Go to itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page to donate. The first time I went, it was in 2012 into Afghanistan. This is, again, through the embed program. Looking back, I think it was one of those things where you're not scared because you don't really know what you don't know. You know, you're running around, you're wearing the, the helmet and the flak jacket. And you're like, oh, this is great when you realize that, you know, a mortar round or an IED or something could happen. So it's this, you know, happy wanderer kind of effect for the first time around. Welcome to It's All Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and the people who make it. Today we're talking about national security issues with two national security reporters. One, Paul Schinkman hey, of U.S. News and World Report. You've been here before, but thank you for coming back. And uh, he brought along Carlo Munoz from uh, The Washington Times. Welcome, Carlo. Hey, thanks, Mike. So uh, we were just talking before the mics came on about the fact that you actually both have been uh, on the road for a bit. Why don't you talk about uh, where you've been and, and what your assignments were? So I, uh, it's been a pretty busy summer for me. In June, I was uh, spent two weeks in Ukraine. I started in the West, where the U.S. Army has a training mission for the Ukrainian Army, conspicuously as far away from the border with Russia as they could possibly find. I was a couple days in Kiev, and then I spent a, about a week uh, in the conflict zone, um, just tooling around there and seeing how, how things have, have progressed or not progressed in the two years of the of the conflict. Then in July, I was traveling with the secretary to the NATO summit, and we did some quick stops in Iraq and Afghanistan. And then I just got back a couple of weeks ago from the Army's National Training Center in the middle of the Mojave Desert in California. Oh, neat. Study. It's the place where they uh, send battalions before they go to Iraq or Afghanistan to acclimatize themselves to the heat and the dust. In this case, they were studying how to incorporate cyber operators into conventional combat units. Oh, neat. And I got to be one of the first reporters to go check that out and see what they're actually up to there. So cool. that story just came out this week. Now, Carlo, you were in Iraq? Yeah, I was in uh, Iraq for about two, two and a half weeks. It had been kind of split time between Baghdad and uh, Erbil. While in Baghdad, I was able to kind of move around, talk to some of the officials. Sort of the idea was to kind of get a of on the ground sort of understanding of the this whole war on ISIS that the United States is kind of participating in, kind of not, you know, depends on who you ask. According to the Iraqis, they are definitely participating. And uh, yeah, so did a couple interviews there, met with some of the commanding generals on the U.S. side and on the Iraqi side. Then I went to uh, Erbil, which is about, I'd say, 30, 35 miles away from Mosul, which is basically the Islamic State's sort of capital in Iraq. So yeah, I, I got out there and um, was able to meet up with a, a local journalist who agreed to take me out to um, the northern uh, front lines uh, controlled by the Iraqi Peshmerga forces. So was out on the uh, the front lines north of Mosul for about three days. Um, it was uh, I'd done conflict reporting before uh, with U.S. forces, but you know, kind of going out with the local guys, it's always it's always a bit different, which is kind of the way things are nowadays. You know, Paul and I were just talking about how. Before, you know, you could, you know, fill out your paperwork and you're automatically good to go with um, U.S. military units. And now, since that program's done, it's not really the case. 
So it was pretty much you're on your own. It's so funny. Yeah, I, I was just talking to a guy in public affairs in the Army who the term that he described was there used to be this conveyor belt where you want mm-hmm. to go to Iraq or Afghanistan, done. Get on the conveyor belt. We'll find somebody over there to go get you set up. And that's because we had, you know, upwards of 100,000 troops in both of those conflict zones. Now, when you ask about doing embeds in Afghanistan, they say, oh, why don't you look at embedding with the Afghan National Army? Mm-hmm. They're like, well, I don't want to get kidnapped. So, no, I will not be doing that. <laughs> but it's just changed entirely with, you know, as Carlo was saying, with the scope of these new wars, it's all this kind of question of are you engaged and to what extent are you engaged? And does that conflict with the political rhetoric of how you're not really engaged because the, the Iraqis are engaged? And it just makes it that much trickier for reporters to get out there to go actually cover what's happening. Wow. So now, how long have you been doing this, uh, Carlo? I know uh, last time Paul was in, we, we talked a little bit about his his bio. So how did you, you start? How did you end up in uh, covering um, national security? Well, it's funny. Um, I started off, I got my first uh, reporting job with a small newspaper in uh, southeast Ohio. And, um, you know, I you know just graduated. This was about 2005. And, you know, at that time I was thinking, you know, D.C., Capitol Hill, I was going to be a politics guy, you know, wanted to be on the campaign trail and all this sort of thing. And I ended up applying for a number of jobs in Washington. One of the few calls I got back was from a trade publication uh, organization called Inside Washington Publishers. Now, uh, I'm sure a lot of uh, journalists in town and maybe elsewhere know of IWP. So I went in and it was pretty straightforward. My my soon-to-be boss uh, sat down across from me and said, all right, you know, we like we like what you've done. Um, you know, we think you have the skills needed to kind of excel here. Uh, there are three, we have three openings for you, uh, healthcare, environmental policy, and defense. And so this was about late 2005, 2006. So the Iraq war was really not going very well. It was always on the news. And I was like, you know what, let's let's try defense. You know, we'll, we'll do that. We'll be on that beat for a year or two and then maybe move on to something else. And I never left, so... That's kind of how it's sort of been. And since then, you know, I've moved from kind of covering the business side of the military, you know, looking at how they buy, how they spend these trillions of dollars, acquisitions, mm-hmm. stuff like that, and then slowly moved to the uh, the policy side. And um, But it really wasn't until about 2008 when I actually was able to start kind of leaving the, uh, the D.C. area and leaving the country in some cases to start covering some of uh, the U.S. Uh, military operations elsewhere. So... Yeah, it kind of has been picking up steam since then, and, you know, it's, it's been great. I had no complaints so far. So did you have any concerns about uh, covering uh, or you know, going into conflict zones? The first time I went, it was in 2012 into Afghanistan. This is, again, through the embed program. And um, looking back, I think it was one of those things where you're not scared because you don't really know what you don't know. You know, you're running around, you're wearing the, the helmet and the flak jacket, and you're like, oh, this is great, when you realize that, you know, a mortar round or an IED or something could happen. So it's, you know, happy wanderer kind of effect for the first time around. But then it gets, you know, you start realizing, you know, okay, that could have been a close call. You start paying more attention. That's what do you think that not being embedded any longer, do you, is, is that creating a more dangerous situation for journalists or just trickier? I would say trickier in a way because it really does depend on who you embed with. Like in Iraq, for example, there's there's a handful of options, but there's only really three major forces that will kind of take you out. And um, one is the Kurdish Peshmerga in the north. The one is the Iraqi military. And the other one are these uh, these militias that have sort of been forming up around the military. Now, you know, it, it's to kind of pick your poison, but I think what comes into play, and Paul, I'm sure you kind of 
did this similar homework too when you went out to um, to Ukraine. But you kind of talked to people who had been out there, and you started gathering information. And you know, they kind of said like, okay, well, you don't, you'll be okay with the Iraqi military. Probably don't want to go out with the militias. They're a bit, you know, they'll little cowboyish attitude about, you know, these things. And the Peshmerga will really take care of you. It's it's as close to as embed, a U.S. embed as you're going to get from what I was told. So, you know, that little bit of legwork really is kind of required where it wasn't so in the past with the embed program. So is is, is there a, um, you know, when you go into an embed with the, the U.S. government, mm-hmm. I mean, they're going to take you, I mean, they're not taking you wherever you want to go. They're going to no. take you where they want to go. Yes. Show you what they want to show you. Yes. And is it the same sort of situation when you go to these other groups? Do they have a an agenda or at least uh, this is the safe area that we mm-hmm. want to show them? We don't want to get involved in other things. I would say, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, there are parallels between how the U.S. structured their embed program and how some of these other organizations are structuring theirs. But I think the biggest difference, at least that I've seen, you know, other journalists' experiences may not really match up. But whereas the Americans would say, okay, this is... This is the level of risk you're you're sort of walking into, like whether it be a patrol or or some sort of convoy. Like this is what you're walking into. It is the same thing with with other forces. But if you ask to go, like, okay, well, I understand the level of risk I'm accepting. Maybe I do something else that you guys go with you for to do something else that is a little more riskier. You know, is that okay with you? Americans are more likely than not like no, like for all intents and purposes, like just stay in the truck kind of thing. Peshmerga guys will look at you or whoever be like. If you want to do it, yeah, sure. But again, know what you're getting into. So again, it's more the onus is more on us now in a way, I think, compared to when the embed program was going. Okay. Yeah. I also find that, you know, for sure, any government that's planning your embed, and especially if you're doing it through the central government in the capital city, they're obviously going to have an angle that they want you to cover, and they're going to want to have a certain spin on how they want the conflict to be seen. And you have to play that game when you're going through the process of getting permission. I mean, Carlo can talk about going to Iraq and that visa process. You know, I was warned in preparing for going to Ukraine, just as Carlo said, I spent a lot of time talking to people who had been there, former ambassadors, think tankers, to get a sense of like, who's there? What's there? What should I prepare for? Where, you know, what's critically dangerous and what's dangerous but important to cover and all the circumstances surrounding that. And once you can kind of weave your way through the bureaucracy and actually get out to a platoon of guys operating at the front lines, I find that then there's, to a certain extent, barriers come down. You know, granted, the officers are still concerned about their professional future, so they're not going to do anything that would endanger that. But I think there's also a little bit more autonomy there and a little bit more respect that, like, well, you got out here. Like, you're not just doing this from you know, the comfort of the capital city, like you're out here with us in the dust and the dirt. And, you know, now we'll, you've earned your right to be here. So we'll take you to go see what you want to see. And sometimes there's a little less control there from sort of the central government on what they want you to take away from this. And that's a great point that uh, that Paul made. I mean, it's kind of a tyranny of distance sort of thing. The further you away you are from whatever headquarters is sort of overseeing the unit that you're with, the further you are away, again, the more control you, the lieutenant or, you know, the younger senior officers and, and enlisted have over, you know, what you see, what you get to do. And I've noticed, too, this sort of cuts across whoever, you know, you're kind of with in these areas, especially at the smaller unit levels. A lot of these guys, you know, they get press, but... Not too many reporters nowadays are willing to kind of go out with them. So they're sort of like, you know, we're out here, like Paul said, in the dust, in the dirt, 
no one really knows what we're doing out here, especially with wars like Afghanistan, which has been dragging on for 15 something years now. It's like, you know, they want their story to be told. And, um, you know, sometimes that sort of desire to do so, their guard, one, does come down and two, they're like, okay, well, it is dangerous out here. And, you know, if you want to write about how dangerous it is, we'll take you and, and kind of bring you right to that to that edge, you know. So at least with some units, I can't say for all, but some of the units I was I was with before in, in, in Afghanistan were pretty willing to take me on take me out on some things where it was like, okay, this is have a real real understanding of, of the boots on the ground kind of thing, you know. I think also, and this is probably one of the greatest skills that any journalist can have and one that I've been really focusing on too, is is making yourself accurately plain two people who are very good at sniffing out nonsense. So you have to come into this environment of tight-knit soldiers as a civilian and help them understand what you're there for. And they're pretty good at figuring out if you're just there to get a quote and get a picture with you with the war zone in the background and then leave versus actually genuinely trying to tell a story and better inform your readers and you know whoever else might be tuning into your into your coverage. And the ability to impart that on the people to whom you're trusting your life, I think that also goes a long way for what kind of access they're going to give you. They'll mm-hmm. protect themselves if they think you're just there with an angle. I think they'll take you in if you can prove that you're really there to be a journalist and mm-hmm. be impartial and tell a story. And be open. You, yeah. I guess you have to, you know, that's not that you want to dupe anybody, but that, that you're you're there to, to tell your story, but also that, to be openly and honestly with them and make them understand that you're being, that you're not trying to, you know, put something over on them. And it's challenging in military circles, I think. I mean, it's a mm-hmm. universal truth of militaries that they're skeptical of journalists. Right. And I think in many cases they have a right to be. Mm-hmm. So, and this is true in the U.S. military. It's especially true in, in the U.S. military, I think. But I, I found it's true with foreign militaries, too, that you have to, to overcome a standing stigma that they have of what a journalist is. So let's let's talk a little bit about the, the 15-year war. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's something that's been going on for so long. I mean, what is the story at this point? I mean... That it's still going on. It's still going <laughs> you know, on. It's explaining so, to people that Afghanistan yeah. is still a conflict. Yeah. Zone. Oh, or, the, or why it's still important to cover right. it. Right. It um, was interesting, just to jump in, just a brief side note, there was that casualty, was that last week? Yeah. And it, it was made right. news because there was a casualty in Afghanistan. And it was mm-hmm. sort of, it was the first time since January, I think, that, mm-hmm. that, that there had been one. But you think about one casualty, what, eight years ago, that wouldn't have made no. news. But it did this time because it's like, oh, wait, hang on. We still mm-hmm. have guys getting shot at. Right. And, you know, it was, it's one of those things where, you know, you look at the, uh, the body counts coming out of both of these wars for however long they've been going on or for as long as they've been going on, you know, they're obviously not as high as, you know, Vietnam, Korea, the kind of scoreboard stuff we used to see on, on TV. But, but yeah, I think yeah, Paul makes a great point. Um, you know, for all intents and for as far as the Pentagon is concerned, this war was declared over two years ago at this point. Yeah. I was there. I covered it. You know what I mean? Like I listened to them say like, yeah, we're done. We yeah. did it. Hooray. Yeah. And then a month later, there was an insider attack, and this yep. was like the first. You know, these these things will continue to be milestones, but I think it's almost of the Pentagon's own making in a way because they they declared this done. You know, and again, it's yeah, it's it's just like this fig leaf that you know Paul, myself, and others, you know, we we try and sort of navigate at times um, in trying to cover these conflicts, particularly from Washington, yeah. um, which which makes things uh, sort of difficult. But I do want to kind of circle back to just really quickly sure. to Paul's point. Um, you know, talking about how like these these infantry guys or these small units, when you're with them, you know, they'll sniff out if you're they're very skeptical to, you know, to kind of figure out like who you are, what you're about. There is another side of that coin, too. They also don't want a reporter who thinks that they actually are one of them. 
like the line, you know, in a way, it, it goes to the same point. Like you have to be clear with them as well. Like in your actions and your questions, you know, they, they one, want to trust you and believe you, but they also don't want you coming away with the sense like, oh, well, now I'm a member of, you know, 1st Brigade, you know, 504th Battalion. You know, no, it's like you earned whatever. Yeah, yeah. Earned. It's like, like okay, you, you've been in country with us for about two weeks. You, you're all right. You know what I mean? Like, it's that sense of, like, you, you get it, but, you know, we're here for another 13 months. You know, you get to go home. So I think that's another kind of interesting uh, thing to sort of, that kept popping up in my head sometimes. Um, like, you know, it's, and it was difficult for me for in a certain sense because, at the time, the longest since I spent in Afghanistan was about a year with with Sergeant Stripes, which actually is <laughs> subsidized by the Defense Department. So on a lot of these things, they're like, oh, you're a Sergeant Stripes, so you're military. No, 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 no. And it just had to be sort of reinforced. So that's kind of what my experience is, again, just the, the other side of the coin of things. I had a photographer in here a couple of years ago, not in here, on the phone that as part of our podcast. And he had, he had been um, in Afghanistan and Iraq, and he talked a lot about um, the issues of PS, PTSD that he was dealing with. And I'm just, just curious, not to say, oh, you guys both have it, but I'm just saying, you know, what are your thoughts about that for, for journalists who are going into conflict zones, who are dealing with stressful situations like that? I mean, Carlos should really take this question because he's the one who spent serious amounts of time in a in a conflict zone. But the first time that I was in Afghanistan in 13, that was interesting. I mean, I, I certainly didn't come anywhere near the level of experiencing something that would cause actual PTSD from the people who have it. You know, very, very serious, unseen condition. But I definitely found myself, you know, I saw some things that were really heady and some things that really stuck with me and changed a lot about the way that I just sort of see things. The world around me. I mean, that sounds really cliche, but you know, like I, you don't see people with gunshot wounds very. I, I don't see people with gunshot wounds very often, and you know, seeing that up close and in a really just like dusty, dirty way, really affected me. And I think it's important to sort of let yourself be affected by those things because your first reaction is to be impartial, right? You're just the medium that's getting this information from a newsworthy area to people who want to consume the news. And I think you need to be conscious of the fact that you're going to be affected by that along the way. Yeah, I I agree with Paul on that. I mean, you know, it's in my personal experience, I guess, for lack of a better term, it it never touched me like physically or like mentally in a way where I actually felt mm -hmm. it, if that makes sense. Right. Um, it's come close, you know, closer for some, not, you know, further for others. But, yeah, I do know some coworkers who actually it has, you know, quite literally touched them. I mean, to the point where, you know, there were stories of, you know, foot patrols and, and IEDs going off and actually kind of having that sort of burned into your uh, your memory. And yeah, it does. I think it does affect um, reporters in that way. And again, you know, even though I said it's one of those things where you want to keep the clear line, especially with these embeds that you are not military. I mean, you know, you're seeing you're seeing the exact same stuff and, you know, you're also a human being. So it will will kind of affect you, um, I think, in a way. Probably not as strong as if you would be going out outside the wire every day, you know, day in, day out, and seeing these things on a repeated basis. Sure. But, you know, seeing it once is enough in, in a way, you know. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, me bring this up, I certainly in no way wanted to sort of diminish um, the experience of people who, who are dealing with PTSD, and there certainly are people in the military who, who are dealing with it as well. It just, you know, this is one of these topics that comes up uh, about journalists is, you know, when they get into high stress situations, you know, how they're having to deal with things like this. 
And that's really the only reason I wanted to bring it up. I just wanted to get your sort of thoughts on it. But, you know, one of the things we try to do on the podcast is provide some lessons or, or some tips or some ideas for people who, who may want to go down this, this track. I mean, you know, how does somebody get into covering national security issues and then how, you know, how can somebody, you know, go on the same sort of assignments that you go on over overseas? Planning for Ukraine was a good lesson for me because that was the first time that I have approached my editors and said, there's news here. I want to go and you should foot the bill the entire way, which is sort of a tricky thing to do in news organizations now, right? Because not everybody has foreign bureaus and traveling is very expensive, as is the insurance to cover you. So that was the first time that I really went through that process, sort of soup to nuts. And it wasn't that I was traveling with somebody that could pick up the air expense, for example, or I could get some fellowship money, for example, to go. This was just, I think this is newsworthy. We should do it. And it was a great lesson for me in sort of the study of where to place yourself, because there is news that you can cover from Washington, D.C. But as Ben Rhodes so colorfully pointed out in that Atlantic article, a lot of foreign bureaus now are substituting foreign coverage from just doing it from D.C. and talking to experts from here. And I think that was a good example of like, all right, well, it's been two years since the conflict began. Russia is now getting antsy. Ukraine is desperate for Western attention. We're coming up on the two-year anniversary, and everybody wants to prove that this conflict is still relevant. There is still hot conflict going on in this part of the country. So this might be a good time to plan to be there in person and see what happens. And sure enough, I was there right in the middle of this uptick in violence. There were At that time, there were about two casualties a day. Now I think it's up to three or four a day, um, which is significantly more than it's been for about a year. So that for me was kind of the first lesson in, in, in trying to use journalism dollars as efficiently as possible to get the most out of this trip. Yeah, I agree with what, uh, what Paul was saying as far as, you know, kind of the approach he took. In terms of defense and national security in general, for those who are trying to, who would like to kind of break their way, I guess, to, into, into this beat, onto this beat. I still think the trades from what I've seen are the way to go. Um, I've watched you know, different, you know, cohorts move through that defense group at IWP and, you know, move on to and stay on the beat, but move on to different publications, which, you know, outside of those pubs, you know, the track going through the traditional mainstream kind of, you know, start as a GA guy or a GA reporter and, you know, work your way up. That's, you know, obviously that, that model, which like many of the models in the journalism business is kind of uh, fallen by the wayside. So, but is this is this something? I mean, this is a job that that you really kind of have to be in DC DC to do to start. Yes, yeah. If you if you if you, if you, you seriously want to make this your career, mm-hmm. you you need to be be in DC at least to start. Yeah, I would yeah. I guess. I mean, I have I know a couple of reporters who started working at local publications near really big military bases. If you wanted to just talk oh, about yeah. like defense and national security coverage, and that was their start was like just you know, sitting outside the gate at Fort Bragg and Mm -hmm. just getting to know those units really well. And then their second job was coming to D.C. to do it. So if you want to be a good defense reporter, that isn't to say that you have to come to D.C. first. And I think you could get as much about posting up in other Western capitals, too. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, I do think D.C. is the national security epicenter Mm -hmm. of the world. I mean, this is where people come for conferences. This is where people come for meetings at the Pentagon. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I know you're not political reporters, but we are in the middle of a, um, a political 
conflict, Wait, I guess, what? going on. <laughs> and, uh, you used to be a political and, But, you know, and, and but the national security, you know, certainly in usual elections, it's it's part of the discussion. Mm. And, and certainly, you know, looking in the next couple of years, you know, what might be the hot zones and what might be the big issues. Do you think that you know, some of these hot zones and things are getting the attention at this point that they should be? I think at this point, particularly with the Middle East, um, it's it's sort of exhaustion and exasperation with the American public. They're already war-weary war from the conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan. And um, and just it, it, this sort of, you know, the aura of, of the Islamic State that is, is, is to uh, uh, the U.S. and its allies' credit, has being sort of chipped away at, you know, via social media and, and, on, and, and different means. But, you know, the normal kind of rudimentary understanding of the organization as this sort of behemoth terrorist jihadi group with its tentacles. I mean, it's like Spectre from yeah, the Bond I was just going to say Spectre. Yeah, you know, and it's like, yeah, it's it's that, that the fear, the fear that's sort of based in this new threat, you know, combined with the weariness from these wars that have gone on for, you know, over decades now. I think that people, they just want to, there's a movie, um, it was a, uh, a spy movie um, with uh, Russell Crowe and Leonardo DiCaprio. Uh, oh, Body, Body of Lies. Lies. Yeah. yeah. So, and it's just, yeah, bear with me, but um, mm-hmm. there's a great uh, monologue that uh, Russell Crowe delivers um, in the beginning. And this is sort of about the global war on terror and his sort of final He's line. He's a journalist was, in that, right? No, he was the CIA. Um, oh, okay. He's a, he plays the CIA uh, state or bureau Like the chief. whistleblower or something. Or he, yeah. He, he leaks yeah. information or something. Right. And, um, you know, he has this great line. He's like, you know, Sometimes American, you know, um, Americans get sick and tired of a moment's silence at a ball game. You know, let's take a moment of silence for, to, yeah. And they said, in his, in the, the end of it was, you know, they just want to be told that it's over. And I think that's where we're at at this election. They just want to be told that it's over or it's getting there. We're ready to move point. on. Yeah. I think people are doubly exasperated because after a decade of war, Barack Obama promised to the country that the wars would end. Right. And not only did they not end, but now we have an extra war zone tacked onto it as well. So there's this sort of double fatigue that not only are we just fed up with war, but we're also fed up with people who can tell us that it's going to be over because that's obviously not possible. Did you guys find it frustrating sometimes to to still be covering these same stories, but in different ways? Maybe. Maybe that's – is that the challenge then is how to keep this obviously important story Mm. still important in people's eyes? I think that is a challenge, um, particularly with with Afghanistan um, right now. As far as being frustrated uh, about, you know, when is this thing going to end? Sure, you know, as, as as an American citizen and just, you know, kind of well, just as a citizen, <laughs> as a person, you just, you know, this, it's it's been a long time, you know, for these conflicts to kind of have drug on. And again, I think maybe that frustration kind of gets, can be channeled in a positive way, like, you know, the frustration motivates you to look for that angle that maybe could grab that reader that could kind of, you know, drop into the echo chamber and start this kind of conversation. Like, okay, how are we seriously going to end, you know, this conflict? And obviously, you know, us as journalists, we're only one part of one part of that, that discussion, but yeah, it, it doesn't help to be frustrated and just kind of throw your hands up and say, okay, new, new subject, you know, yeah. at least for me. As hard as that is sometimes. It's yeah, yeah, it's true. You yeah. know, screw this. This, this, is, this mm-hmm. is too hard. But with all that in mind, I think now more than ever, it is essential that people have an understanding of, of, what's going, of what's really going on. Not what's happening today, but what's sort of going on in the bigger picture. I mean, I think a lot about how 
if you sort of consider that you begin forming memories that that you last around age three or four, the average voting age male in Afghanistan now will have known nothing in their lives but war with U.S. soldiers based nearby. Hmm. That's a generation of people that are going to have a very different view of the world as they start being the ones to, you know, look for things to do in their life and start reaching positions of power. You know, same as those who are experienced conflict in Iraq and those who have been displaced from their homes in Syria. They're mm-hmm. not going home any anytime right. soon at all. And that is going to inform what tomorrow's conflicts are going to be like. So as difficult as it is to find a reason to get your reader to care, and that is, I think, really difficult, it's more important now than I think it's ever been for covering these conflicts. Well, I don't have anything else to ask. Uh, this is this has been great. Uh, I appreciate you both coming in. What what are you working on right now? Can you say this isn't going out for a few weeks? Yeah. So I uh, well, I hear Carlo because you're because uh, you haven't filed yet on no, your rack story. I, right? I, yeah, I want to hear all about this. We are uh, making the sausage as we speak. Um, uh. Yeah, we. Uh, I went to Iraq as part of a, um, a series that the Times is putting together, sort of um, a. A look two years sort of after the initial kind of sweep of ISIS across uh, Iraq and Syria. You know, where do things stand? What's sort of the end game now? What's the fallout? And uh, yeah, we have a, uh, we have a, uh, I think it's going to be two part series in print. Don't quote me on that. And, uh, you know, we'll also have uh, some, some articles online. Um, yeah, kind of looking at that. So I am in the midst of bringing that home, uh, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, once that's done, um, you know, kind of going to be bearing down like all of us here in, in D.C. and across the nation for the election. Um, sure, it'll be all hands on deck for every publication um, that's either, you know, reporters from publications that are listening and the ones who we work for um, to kind of pitch in. But uh, you yeah. think you're going to have to deal with some election coverage or sort of from a national security angle? I already have for me. I mean, have you covered much of the You know, I, I've... Um, I've been requesting. Is that why you went to yeah, Iraq I've been requesting to, to go to uh, <laughs> to uh, conflict zones to specifically avoid. No, uh, no this no, is a conflict. Yeah. Zone. Yeah, exactly. I know, yeah. no. Well, it's funny because you know, you see, I'm sure we all saw the um, kind of the, the BuzzFeed like stories about reporters, you know, donning flak jackets and um, yeah. you know have helmets to go down and cover the, uh, the conventions, which is you know kind of ironic. I mean, it's it's yeah, it's pretty funny. Yeah. Yeah, or maybe not. I don't or know. not. Or not. Okay. Yeah. Well, th- thank you, gentlemen, for coming in. This yeah, is great. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah. Appreciate it. Next time on It's All Journalism. And these consultants who are teaching you about podcasting, they'll tell you, oh, don't worry about your sound. Don't, o- don't overstress on your audio sound. That's what they really mean. But what it comes off to most people as is, you know, don't worry about the sound. Just record something and, you know, good enough is fine. And that's okay. However... As I quite often point out, most people who are in podcasting actually know nothing about audio production. In our next podcast, we talk to Chris Curran, audio engineer extraordinaire, about how podcasters and journalists can improve their audio production. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about digital media. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Google Play, and Podcast One. This week's episode was edited by Nicola Grisco. Amber Healy provided our web content. Nick Dupre wrote our theme music, and I'm your host, Michael O'Connell. Hey, I've written a book. You can order copies of Turn Up the Volume, a down and dirty guide to podcasting on our website. Visit itsalljournalism.com and follow the link at the top of the page. Isn't it time you started your podcast? 
you like the work that we're doing here at It's All Journalism? Now you can show your support on our Patreon page. Follow the link at the top of our website and donate. For as little as a dollar a month, you can access exclusive content and receive updates about upcoming episodes. Donate a little bit more and we'll send you cool swag like our It's All Journalism mug or a signed copy of my podcasting book. There are even opportunities for you to submit ideas for future shows or even appear on an episode. Go to itsalljournalism.com and click on the Patreon link to find out more. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening.